0: Welcome to another episode of Ask a Jew, where a secular, sinful Israeli speaks to our holy religious friend. I'm Yael, here with Chayalea. Um Part of the reason we started a podcast was really just so we could talk to people that we like and find interesting <laughs> for an hour <laughs> and say that we have a podcast as an excuse. Exactly. Um, but we are so excited to have Yasha Monk here. Hi, Yasha. Hi,
1: that's the reason why I have a podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah, right? I, I feel like it's such a good life hack.
1: It it just gives you an excuse to ring up anybody in the world and say, talk to me. And you know, sometimes they say no, yeah. mostly they say yes, it's great. Yeah, <laughs>
0: it's yeah. True. It's like this, the South Park episode where um, Cartman said he was a food critic, but he was like a Yelp reviewer. <laughs> and he would go into restaurants and be like, I'm a food critic. Uh, oh but welcome God. to our little Yelp review of a podcast. So Yasha, you're a, a professor, pr- professor of international affairs at Johns Hopkins, right? You're like, you're a million things. You found a persuasion to the digital magazine. You have a great uh, podcast called The Good Fight That We Love. Um, mm-hmm. Your uh, wait, I have to like author. so many things. You're a uh, contributing editor at The Atlantic. You're a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. You're all these things. You're our age, and, and I put it in my contract, but I have
1: to mention every single one of these things, so I would walk out. Yeah. So thank <laughs> yeah. you. For I
0: just want it because <laughs> I I want my parents and Chila's parents to listen to this <laughs> and see how much one can accomplish <laughs> at our age.
2: No, it's embarrassing uh, for us. Come
0: but on. as, 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 as Tom Lehrer
1: once said, it's a sobering thought. But when Mozart was my age, he. Been dead for six years,
2: yeah. <laughs> and I think when Tom
1: Lehrer said that, oh my you know, god, he was five years younger than I am now. So,
2: <laughs> oh my god, yeah. I think about Martin Luther King Jr. all the time, who was killed at thirty-nine. Imagine yeah. what he accomplished in you know that amount those, of time.
0: You know those Instagram memes that go every once in a while. You're like, you know, George Clooney didn't get his first role until forty, <laughs> and so and so didn't go to space until he's fifty, but every year they make the rounds and every year I am like older than one person on that
2: list. <laughs> I know. I know.
0: <laughs> At some point, even those are going to become irrelevant. Uh, but know. Yasha, you have a great book called uh, the identity trap that I, I just, I really, really love this book. And I've, I've read a lot about this subject, I think, but every, I was just uh, texting our, our little group chat earlier. I feel like every word in that book was, was concise and useful and helpful. And really took people through kind of the history of what you call, I call identity politics, but you have a different different word for it. Um, and it just just really really great book. Highly highly recommend it. Um, But what I'm more interested in, before we get to the book, is why do you write so much? (laughs) You just had a book come out, Wow, like a year ago, right?
1: Didn't you just have a book come out? I had a book come out like a year and a half ago, yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, you know, to put you at your ease, I'm not going to write another book for a while. So everybody should buy this book (laughs) and read this book, but it's not going to be the next book for a little moment. Um, I mean, this book kind (laughs) of... uh, you know, came out of a shared set of concerns. Um and and you know, part three of this book kind of originally was gonna be part of the earlier book. I mean I realized it really needs its own book. And so in this particular case I sort of, you know, wound up with one one book too many on my hands. <laughs>
2: Wait, uh, before we get into the book, which I want to talk about, and I love your, the the way I got introduced to you is from your other book, The People Versus Democracy. And I I have a lot of questions about that. And a lot of questions because of what's going on in Israel right Mm. now. I think there's a lot of relevance to that earlier book of yours. But I really want to talk about you growing up in Germany as a Jew, if you don't mind. I'm so curious about that. And first of all, how did your family end up living in Germany, and what was it like being Jewish as a kid in Germany?
1: Uh, you know, should I mean, you know, I know that, you know, when somebody first mentions a certain historical event, um, you know, a bell goes <laughs> off, and I, I, you know, I swore to myself that I would yeah. get through the whole episode without mentioning of the bell. But, you know, now you ask me yeah, how no, my parents no. end up in Germany. How can I end up, you know, not mentioning the event?
0: Honestly, this is, uh, this is four four minutes in. This is kind of late for us. I know. I know. We usually get I, to the Holocaust I, a lot what earlier. What
1: are you yeah, talking I know. About? It's it's like you know, it's the Scottish play. You know, I'm not going to say Macbeth. <laughs> 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 uh, so look, my 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 grandparents, uh, you know, grew up in Stettles in Central Europe, uh, you know, in what's now Ukraine, what 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 would have been uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the time for most of them. Um, and, uh, you know, they became good communists as, as teenagers, uh, right. Like hoping for, mm-hmm. as, for, 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 a world, which was more tolerant, which, you know, being Jewish or mm-hmm. being part of this or that group wouldn't define you deep down in which you would have opportunities and be able to see what you have in common mm-hmm. with other people respective of that. Um, you know, all of them were in prison at some point in the late twenties or thirties for the communist activism, um, mm-hmm. survived the Holocaust, um, by mm-hmm, going mm. uh, east, actually. So they were in the Soviet Union for for most of it and came back to Poland right. after the war to, to help to build up the regime, which they still had hopes for, um, despite all the things they might have learned yeah. by that time about, you know, um, uh, uh, Bolshevism. Um, uh, and in 1968, this is something that's sort of surprisingly not that well known, um, there was this big state-sponsored anti-Semitic campaign in Poland. So in 1967, there was about 50,000 Jews left in the country. I mean, obviously wow. many, many, many fewer uh, than the about 3 million that there had been before the war, but still some right. substantial number. By 1970, there was 500. Um, so really, the remaining wow. Jews were, wow. were were pushed out. Um, and my family scattered to, uh, uh, to, to Sweden and Denmark and the United States and um, my mom, because she was a musician, ended up uh um being a student in Germany and then staying on and my grandfather joined her there. And so my mom and my grandfather mm-hmm. sort of ended up in Germany and much of her family ended up in, in different places. And I was, you know, born and uh raised in Germany. I was born in nineteen eighty two, so so a good moment after that. Um so that's that's how I ended wow. up. There.
2: Wow. It's interesting because you know, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors were Holocaust survivors. They Stop showing off. My grandparents what? are Holocaust survivors too. <laughs> <laughs> Such a common theme here. Yeah. Anyway, um, but my grandmother particularly was so anti-Polish and anti-Poland in a way worse. I mean, I, I know it sounds crazy to say this, but I feel like she spoke worse about the Polish than she did about the Germans. And mm. it's interesting that post-World War II, Germany ends up having you know a thriving Jewish life there and, for a lot of people. And Poland is really still like a wasteland of... Jewish life. And it's, I don't know, do you have any, like, thoughts about that? Why, how Germany was able to allow, I do not and I don't mean legally, but mm. I'm saying emotionally allow Jewish communities to grow there. What do you think about that? Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, part of it, I think, was the difference between the political systems. Um, you know, there was much right. less uh, vibrant uh, Jewish life in East Germany until 1989 than in West mm. Germany. Um, So, uh, you know, perhaps it was more about sort of the the general political background conditions. And of course, you know, in a totalitarian system, uh, you know, anybody who has, uh, you know, an associational life is not directly under control of the state um, and a set of values that isn't, you know, directly the promotion of a ruling ideology of a country is by its nature suspect. Um, And, you know, there's Mm -hmm. many tragedies of sort of the grand promise of communism in the 20th century that, uh, you know, was, was betrayed and turned out, uh, uh, despite genuine hopes of often well-intentioned people to be, uh, uh, you know, the foundation of really cruel societies. Um, But I think the way in which it uh, just destroyed the ability of minority groups to be true to themselves is, is, is one of those.
2: Wow, that's a really good point. Mm. Is Germany um I, I know people I've heard you talk about this before also about how Germans really view um outsiders as outsiders versus like in America where everyone who moves here becomes American and cuz it's more based on ideals and ideology. Is it still like that? Do you find it, is Germany still like that or has it become more like the United States because of the mass immigration or is it has it made it worse? What do you
1: I think it's definitely become see? better and and sort of uh, I mean the, the, the slightly cynical thing to say from a Jewish perspective is that uh you know the sort of refugee crisis in twenty fifteen and um uh all of the sort of political contestation over it and some of the real problems that came to the country with it has been great for the Jews because finally we're no longer the only other, you know, like when I was <laughs> right, growing right. up, um yeah, yeah. you know, Germans you can say it
0: could be worse. Yeah,
1: Germans were grappling with their history um for 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 for, right. for, for good and obvious reasons. Um and I had real trouble... You know, I, I come from a family because, because you know, my grandparents were communists and my parents grew up in socialist Poland and so on. I had extremely little Jewish tradition. I mean, my sense of being Jewish was reasonably strong because of my family history and so on. But, you know, I I, I mean... I joke that sort of majority of time that I've gone to Passover dinners, it's been as a plus one of my Shiksa girlfriends. You know, like it's, it's, it's sort of.
2: <laughs> right. So, right.
1: anyway, so growing up, it's not like I was sort of predestined to think of my Jewishness as sort of this incredibly important fact about myself. But it was hard not to in Germany for two reasons. One is that sometimes I experience forms of anti Semitism and, you know, forms of, uh, you know, aggression and so on. And that was kind of unpleasant, but easy enough to deal with because you can have a reaction right. of of measured pride, of saying, you know what, you think I'm somehow less than because I'm Jewish? I'm not, screw you, you know, I'm going to stand up for Mm -hmm. myself. And Mm -hmm. it's sort of obvious how to Mm -hmm. respond, even if it's not always pleasant. But there was this really strong strain of philo-Semitism in which all of these people who I was growing up around had this really strong sense of, um, you know, our country is defined by the Holocaust and mm. my relationship to what it is like to be a good German is defined by my uh, shame for and sorrow of the Holocaust. And because there weren't a lot of Jews in, in Germany, it was about 30,000 until the early 1990s, and then it sort of grew to about 100,000 because a lot of Soviet Jews ca- came to the country. Right. Um, you know, a lot of people I grew up around, they'd never met a Jew. Right. And so when yeah, we yeah. finally met this mythical creature that somehow was, you know, representative in the minds of you know their historical shame. They wanted to prove to me, you know, how much they love the Jews, and so yeah. they would, you know, tell me <laughs> yes. how beautiful a language Hebrew is, assuming that I must speak Hebrew, right? Or they would tell me, <laughs> you know, not, yeah. Woody Allen's movies are very funny because somehow, you know, in the mind of a German in, nin- in the nineteen nineties, like Woody Allen was a stereotypical Jew, you know.
0: Yeah, was that uh, was that like That's amusing funny. or uncomfortable or both?
1: Both. Um, You know, now when I go back and I feel traces of it, I'm amused, but that's because, Mm -hmm. you know, I've worked through some of the stuff and I live abroad and, you know, I'm sort of less touched by it. At the time I did, uh, you know, it was funny. I was able to laugh about it, but it made me feel like I would Mm -hmm. never truly be an equal, right? Like the more people wanted to prove to me how much they liked me and, you know, what special sympathy they had for me because of what happened to my family, the less I felt that I could actually be, you know, genuine friends with them. And so that, you know, perhaps we'll come back to it later, but but that is one of, I think, the early reasons why I've been uncomfortable with certain norms and uh, sort of ideas that have taken hold in the United States recently. Because, you know, mm-hmm. I grew up very much as the representative of the most socially salient victim group in the country I was in, right? I <laughs> right. was sort of at the top right. of the oppression Olympics in in the country I grew mm-hmm. up in. And <laughs> yeah. I hated the way that I was treated. And I wish that people hadn't treated me that way. And now I'm sort mm. of, you know, living in the United States, where I just read as like a white guy, Um and so yeah. you know, suddenly I'm like, whatever you know, on the other end of 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 a thing, and I'm expected to treat people in certain circumstances in the ways that I was treated, mm-hmm. and I didn't like being treated that way, and I don't want to treat others in that way either, because I know yeah. that that's not in fact conducive to to being friends and to getting along. But just totally. to very quickly, yeah. you know, finish the other thought, you know, Germany uh, has a much higher share of people born abroad now than it did. 30 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. right. A lot of the debate now in Germany is less about the Holocaust and Jews than it is about, you know, what do we do with, with the Syrian and Afghani immigrants who've come here in the last mm-hmm. 10 years and so on. Um, and that's a positive development for the country. In some ways, it's a, it's a complicated and perhaps negative development for the country in certain ways. For me as a Jew, it's it's liberating because it, does, it no longer feels like when Germans think through what it is to be a German or what their identity is, you know, you're the avatar of that debate because there's now sort of other avatars of that debate and that's kind of a little bit of a relief.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it's funny how, like, growing up in Israel, you know, obviously the Holocaust was a big part of our education and a big part of our identity and all our grandparents. But Germany, at least in, like, my early adulthood, never... I mean, it was very clear that there was that Germany and there's this Germany now. Mm -hmm. And now it's a place where Israelis love to go to Berlin and they love, like, you know, German, like, techno music. And, you know, even last year I saw um, latest Israeli Independence Day. The, um, the head of the German Air Force flew an F-16 hmm. uh, colored in, like, German and Israeli flags. And, and, and it was so touching. And, and it, it gave me hope for the future because it's like if that's something that could happen, you know, 70 years after the Holocaust... You know, what What potentially could happen 70 years from now? But, you know, I like the idea of holding those two things together in your head. One, that, you know, the Nazis were awful and it's a big part of our identity. And we talk about Germany, Germany's part in that, not as like a bystander, but, you know, as a perpetrator. But also, we're cool now with the Germans.
2: Right.
1: <laughs>
0: All
1: right. Well, and for me, it's... I just... I, mean, I cannot... I, we'll come back about some of those contemporary debates in the States today. But for me, it's a good lesson for what to do and what not to do in terms of how to deal with one's past. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's this sort of line of argument uh, that some people like Susan Neiman have made very explicitly that sort of like, you know, the Germans are the sort of world champions of dealing with the Holocaust and with the past. And that should be the model <laughs> that Japan follows in its own history or that the United States follows in dealing with the dark aspects of its history. And there's something, you know, that, there's a truth to that, right? I was in Hiroshima a number of months ago, and it's a very moving wow. uh, museum about the atomic bomb attack. But it doesn't mention the origins of a war in any way. It doesn't have any kind of mm-hmm. acknowledgement that perhaps this is right. actually a war that Japan, among along with Germany and other countries, started. <laughs> right? And sort of that complete historical news is obviously a problem. It's obviously a problem that in some parts of the American South, people really don't want to teach uh, yes. about slavery or that they do want to mm-hmm. sort of glorify the Confederacy. Absolutely. But on the other end, I don't think that the kind of moment of single-minded obsession with the Holocaust and the Nazis that Germany was going through in the late 80s and 1990s, when I was growing up, was particularly helpful to the Jews living there. I don't think that that actually yeah. made, it, made it easier. And even then, no German ever said, uh, so far as I know, you know, the Holocaust is the definition of Germany. You know, the Holocaust is the founding moment mm-hmm. of what Germany is. You can't understand. Germany and German history you know, without being uh, right about nine, the Holocaust, but to say that it defines it,
0: project, yeah, and so right.
1: sort of you know when when you know if you know this is really a kind of inside baseball thing, right? But like the 1619 project to say, look,
2: mm-hmm. we'll
1: think of 1619 as one of the founding moments of the United States along with 1774, right. 1776, fine, mm-hmm. yeah, I right. think that's that's a fourth right. point. But parts of a project, part of representation, really you know crossed out. 1776, and put in 1619. Yeah. That is the foundation of America. And that makes no more sense than to say that the Holocaust is the foundation of, of Germany.
2: Yeah, well, Americans I just like to do everything. I just want to get to a point where when I meet a German, I don't automatically start thinking like, who were your grandparents? Where were they in 1939? What were they doing? <laughs> were they in the, you know, were they guards in Auschwitz? I just want to get past but, that because I'm being honest, like it's very it's very real to me when I meet non-Jewish Germans, I'm like immediately in that headspace. Mm. And I think, I don't know if this is true or not, but like... I imagine that a lot of young Germans are so sick of the Holocaust. I'm sure that there's an yeah. element of like we've heard, we know, we know what our grandparents, our great grandparents did. It's enough. We're not those people, and I, I get that. And I would be resentful if I was constantly being banged on the head about this when it's not their fault. I mean, the young Germans who are you know alive today didn't do anything wrong. I mean, yeah. it's not. Con- but I can't separate sort of their. I-, I struggle with this inside of myself, feeling like. It's not their fault, and we should stop banging on about it, but also looking at them and being like, where where was your family? And you probably killed my great-grandparents, you know, something like that. So, I don't know. I struggle with that a little bit, but uh, it's—I appreciate what Germany has done over the last 70 years, especially—I mean, they made some very, you know, important decisions early on in the state of Israel— And Israel went through a lot of internal dialogue and debate about what to take from Germany and Mm -hmm. how to handle the relationship. And I think, I mean, look, you can argue both ways, and I've read lots of books on either side, and I think that it was the right thing to do for the healing, you know, at least for both sides to feel that they were part of a project that moved forward, right, rather than being stuck. And I think here in America, we're so stuck. In all of the, anci- the 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 history, right? And we're so stuck, and no one knows how to move forward. I don't know. I don't know if there's even an answer. How to I move think some people know how to move forward. I think we're just bouncing between between
0: extremes. But maybe that's a good segue into yeah. into your book, Yasha. Uh, so so, what made you want to want to write this book that's specifically focused on on identity?
1: Yeah. So I've written on sort of I guess three topics. I and mean, first there was this memoir about growing up Jewish in Germany, which was sort of some amount of you know figuring yourself out. Um uh you know the second was was a couple of books about the rise of 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 populism around the world. Um uh you know and I'm very worried uh I I, I like to say that I was a democracy hipster. So I was worried about the doom of democracy before <laughs> was cool. And and I really yes. started to warn about the fact that these movements which are still somewhat fringe at the time could enter the mainstream, could win elections and could really Dangerous to democratic institutions um, at a time when most political scientists thought, you know, I mean, perhaps in some countries, but you know, in the, in the United States or in France or in other long standing democracies, you really don't have to worry about that. Um, and and I remain worried about that. I, you know, I, I remain worried about what happens if Donald Trump wins the United States in 2024, and I'm worried about. Um, uh, you know w- what's happening in Israel at the moment. Um, I'm worried about mm-hmm. uh, you know attacks on democracy in, in India and, and Hungary and and, and elsewhere. Um, but I wrote an enormous amount on that topic, right? Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. and and at some point I had sort of two things that that I was thinking through. The first is, well, if we've been warning about this stuff for for ten years nearly at this point, and nevertheless a lot of these. Uh, figures are continuing to do pretty well. If, you know, the odds of Trump beating Biden in 2024 are sort of roughly even at the moment, despite everything. Perhaps what's going to make a difference is not me writing another article in The Atlantic saying how terrible Donald Trump is, which he is, he is, he's terrible. He's terrible mm-hmm. you know.
0: um, some people have written once or twice about it. Yeah, and as have I,
1: you know, like, uh, you know, more mm-hmm. than once or twice. just, Perhaps we have to start looking into the mirror a little bit and, and asking ourselves why okay. so many of our fellow citizens are still attracted to right. to some of these kinds of political figures. And the other is that, you know, teaching at a university and being a member of all of these sort of, you know, supposedly politically neutral, but in reality left-leaning institutions that you listed at the beginning of mm-hmm. a conversation. I've just seen a fundamental intellectual transformation from when I came to America in the late 2000s to today. Mm-hmm. You know, the basic conceptions of what America is, of the kinds of norms that the organization should have, of the kind of society we should aim for, has just fundamentally shifted over the last 10 or 15 years. And while now finally there's a, you know, a whole lot of great literature and political science research and so on about the nature of populism, you know, what makes it rise, you know, what some of the potential remedies against it are. Just nobody or very few people have done serious work about that. And so I wanted to understand, you know, mm-hmm. whatever what we call it, identity politics, we call it the identity synthesis, the identity trap, as as, as I call it. We call it, call it wokeness, which is the kind of, mm-hmm. you know, most, most, <laughs> most embattled term about it. Where do these yeah. ideas come from? How do they come to be so powerful. Are they good ideas or not? And how can you be serious about you know, fighting injustices that persist, fighting for marginalized groups of which Jews have often been one and will once again yes. be one quite possibly. How can you have a conception that takes very seriously the ways in which people can be marginalized on the base of the group they're, they're part of, but while holding on to a more inspiring, a more universalist, a more humanist vision of a kind of society that we want to build. And so, you know, yeah, that's, that's, that's what what the book is. And it goes back, you know, one thing that I want to emphasize is that I sort of anticipate that some people looking at the People versus Democracy and the Great Experiment was all about, you know, how to make democracies work and the threat of populism. They're going to say, oh, you know, Yasha's changed course. You know, he used to be worried about Trump <laughs> and now he's talking about how terrible the woke are or something like that. But you go back to my memoir, yeah. uh, my first book, and I worry about yeah. the ways in which the way I was treated was not, in fact, something that made me feel like an equal in society. You go back to People versus Democracy, mm-hmm. my book that we do is yes. warning about populism and so on. I worry about the tendency of the left to give up on free speech just because some people are invoking that term in an insincere way. So I, I don't think I've mm-hmm. changed politically. This is of a piece with what I've been thinking and worrying about for the last 10 years.
2: Are you as worried? Trump, uh, are, are you as worried about democracy today as you were when you wrote the end of democracy? Like, how do you the people versus democracies are? Are you as worried about it like five years later?
1: Yeah, I am. I think you know it used to be that when when I took the sort of comparative politics field seminar when I was a PhD student at Harvard, you know what we learned was uh, you know there's, there's, there's um rich dictatorships that may never become democracies, there's poor Countries or countries that are, have very fresh democratic institutions, and it's unsurprising if their democratic systems fail sometimes, but it happens all the time in less affluent countries, right? But when you have a, 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 an affluent democracy with more than about $16,000 GDP per capita in today's terms, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's had at least two turnovers of elections for free and fair elections, Right you're safe, you're, you're fine, you don't have to worry about it. There's no examples of those mm-hmm. democracies collapsing. And so people were very dismissive of the idea that, you know, democracy in America might be embattled. Um, you know, I was always somewhat worried or, or seriously worried about the dangers to democracies you know, in Israel in the United States and European countries that mm-hmm. seemed pretty consolidated at the time. Now, I think what's happened in the last eight years is that the consensus in the field has flipped. And in a weird way, certainly when you read the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Atlantic and so on. <laughs> but but also when you, you know, read political science research, people have gone from uh, I'm to overstate it a little bit, they've gone from no danger to democracy at all to we're basically doomed and you know. And I sort of continue to be mm-hmm. very worried. I don't think it's likely that American democracy will collapse. I don't even think it's likely that Israeli democracy will collapse. Right. But there's a very real mm-hmm. risk of that, and we need to take that very, very Seriously. So I would say, you know, roughly speaking, I'm as concerned as I was seven or eight years ago, but sort of I've gone from being one of the most concerned people relative to my peers <laughs> to being sort of not less concerned because, you know, but, 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 but having a, a, you know, a lower estimate of likelihood that the worst case will, right. will materialize.
2: Yeah, yeah, you're watching also, what's happening, and you're making adjustments, and you're thinking. Well, well, as it's you're not even, I think what's the likelihood is about the, the same as
1: it was as I thought it was seven or eight years ago. But people are sort of overtaking nice. me, right? Yeah, the yeah, estimate yeah. has right. gone from zero to ninety, and I'm still at forty. <laughs> right. You know, like.
2: Yeah, you
0: know? Right, right. Well, also, demo- I think I think the word democracy used to be kind of the holy grail, and and you know the, the one thing that we need to preserve at all costs. And you hear a lot of voices now from both the left and the right saying, "Okay, yeah, democracy is you know it's fine, it served us well, but it, you know we can we, we can do better through you know some kind of I don't know hybrid models or or whatever. Like it doesn't seem to be uh, a taboo topic anymore to talk about you know, replacing Mm -hmm. democracy. And, and I, when I read, uh, when I read your book, which I think came out in 2018, right? Um, you know, I read it and it was, if it was written about Israel today, uh, because it really, really talks about, you know, the threat of populism and also I can't help but think about it in Israel. I know where, you know, where my loyalties lie and I know what side of the, the fight I am on, so to speak. But also, uh, you can't help but hear the the voices on the other side of people saying, "Well, you know, this is what the people voted for. This is, in a sense, the most democratic thing possible." And if you haven't, you know, caught up on Israeli politics, basically, it's about changing the, uh, you know, uh, parts of the legal system uh, in Israel right now that uh, a lot of people argue are, are will make the country less democratic. Uh, but there's a lot of people who are saying, well, you know, these are changes that people voted for. This is, you know, what the majority of Israel wants. And how can that be undemocratic? And it's, you know, it, it puts us in a real bind.
1: Yeah, I think there's two elements here. And I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm far from being an expert on, on Israeli politics. so I want to speak with a little bit of caution, but... Um,
0: Everybody's an expert yeah, on that's Israeli right. politics. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um <laughs>
1: there's a great uh, French phrase that we really should make happen in other country, which is a tutologue. So, you know, there's a politologue, which is a political scientist, or a sociologue, which is a sociologist. And there's a tutologue, which is, you know, somebody who knows about everything. And uh, that's that yeah, term yeah. for, you know, people who mouth off <laughs> on Every TV. Every Israeli. You know, but tutologue. So I, I'll <laughs> yeah. pretend to be a tutologue and talk about it as well. Okay. But um, the, the, There's two things here, right? I mean, first is that the basic mechanism of populism is not that, you know, you want economic redistribution as in sort of 19th century populism in the United States. It's not that, you know, you upset ways that people used to do things and you're a newcomer. That can be very positive for a political system. It's the claim that I and I truly represent the people. And so if you disagree yeah. with me, you're by virtue of that fact, uh, not just a political opponent, but an enemy, a traitor, Right, and so there is no mm-hmm. such thing as a legitimate opposition. If you're part of the opposition, yeah. you are actually an enemy of the country of the real members of this country. Mm-hmm. And that was true mm-hmm. of sort of how Sarah Palin talked in the United States, you know, yeah. all the way yeah, back in, right. in, in in 2008. It's true of how Donald Trump talks, and 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 in my reading, it is also true of how Netanyahu talks. So that's one way I think yeah, in which in, in, in which sort of my on populism is relevant in Israel. Mm-hmm. The other is that. I actually have misgivings about the very significant role that courts and judges now play in making public policy. I worry about that in the United yeah. States, right where everything from um uh, you know health insurance abortion. to abortion yeah, yeah. to gay marriage to all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Gender, was uh, yeah. defined and, and decided by the courts rather than through popular participation. That's something that, you know, people on the left used to like and defend as long as the court uh, uh, leaned in that direction. And by and large, I was in agreement with, the, mm-hmm. you know, big Supreme Court cases of the latter half of the 20th century, many important advances mm-hmm. made through the courts. But it used to be that that, that the left defended that because of that. Um, Now it's sort of saying this is terribly undemocratic and tyrannical because the Supreme Court is starting to lean conservative. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a problem one way or the other. You shouldn't have questions of real public policy continually decided by courts in that kind of way. But what you do need is a court that can step in when the prime minister or the president oversteps the boundaries of a constitutional authority. Because mm-hmm. part of democracy is not just to vote for one government. It's to be able to send that government home if you don't like it anymore. And we see in countries yeah. like Hungary or in countries like Venezuela that when you don't have a check on the executive, it can become very easy for them to, dis- to to misshape the public sphere and the basic institutions and the protections for voters in such a way that it becomes effectively impossible to send a democratically elected government back home by democratic Means So in the Israeli context, mm-hmm. context, I actually think there's some amount of point that critics of the Supreme Court have in saying it, it was one of the courts in the world that made decisions about most things, that so was most actively mm-hmm. involved in setting public policy in a sense. And there was something troubling and undemocratic about that. The problem is that the current mm-hmm. set of reforms is not just trying to circumscribe the area in which the court is able to rule, it is really gutting it as an institution that provides any kind of check on an executive that is overstepping the boundaries of its power. And so even though I have some sympathy for the complaints, I think that the remedy as it's being pursued by a government which is very active, demonizing anybody who disagrees with them, is is a Mm -hmm. real concern for sustaining, you know, free and fair elections and, and even playing field in Israeli politics.
0: Yeah, I, I I agree. And I also think, you know, you mentioned Netanyahu talking about people as being traitors and the right. And the problem is once, once the level of rhetoric goes there, you can't bring it back down. So you can't, you have to fight fire with fire in a way. Uh, And so you hear from the, from the opposition, from the people protesting you hear them also go into hyperbole. You know everything's a dictatorship, uh, everything is a threat to democracy, and you know that's also something I'm uncomfortable with, right? But I also you also kind of understand the need to elevate things to that level. And you know you talk in your in your book about the about how social media kind of took. Uh, took just a lot of these ideas and I think pushed them, pushed them over the cliff in a way. Right. So everybody's really kind of only exposed to the things that make them the angriest and the things that get them all hyped up. And we're all, our starting point is already so antagonistic it that is. everything, you know, that's why everybody who disagrees with me is, you know, a racist anti-Semite,
2: uh, <laughs> you know, who doesn't deserve to to have the first, First Amendment rights. Uh, is, is, well, let me ask you like this for a second. is, Democracy a threat to liberalism? Like, is that, do you see that around the world? I mean, because when I think about Israel, I kind of think that that's more of the question that the protesters are asking. And I don't know how to think about that, like Mm. separating out liberalism from democracy and understanding like, maybe democracy is more of a a hindrance to liberalism anything
1: yeah so one would you know I I'm a liberal uh both I suppose in a more political sense and 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 more fundamentally in the philosophical sense but the problem with the word liberal is that uh it it's just so uh yeah. open to misinterpretation <laughs> people mean so many different things about it that even for really in, in a deep sense define myself as a philosophical liberal I'm worried that uh you know the terms yeah. always confuses people so so let me say a couple of things about this I mean uh the way I think of our political systems is liberal democracies, or you know, more conservative people might say it's democratic republics. And, and what that expresses is two twin values, um, individual freedom and collective self-determination, right? So we together want to make decisions about the rules, the laws that bind us. We don't want to live in a country where you know a dictator or monarch or army general or, or a rabbi or a priest or an imam tell us how to live, right? We want to collectively make decisions about the laws that, that bind us. In our political life, you may have private um, mm. uh, uh, ideas about how to live that are influenced by religious authorities, and that's fine. Um, but at the same time, we want to have that individual freedom, right? We think there's limits to what the majority can tell us. If the majority tells us to go to church, we say, no, we have freedom of conscience, <laughs> and we should be able mm-hmm. to decide ourselves how to worship and whether to worship at all, right? If the majority tells us what kind of relationships we're allowed to have, um, we should say, no, um, uh, that is something that we decide as as, as as private individuals. That's not up to majority vote, right? And so I think what, what you're really right. asking is, sort of, do individual freedom and collective self-determination come in conflict? Um, and, uh, you know, in a sense they don't, in a sense they do. They don't because any society where we've actually been able to sustain genuine freedom over time has been a democratic society. Um, you know, you right. can have a place like Singapore, you can have, you know, certain Middle Eastern dictatorships that allow for some amount of, you know, individual freedom uh, in terms of lifestyles, so in terms of consumption of alcohol or whatever. But but ultimately, right. you know, the moment that you criticize the government, the moment that you're sometime, somehow seen as um, being out of the ordinary, there's a very real threat of you going off to jail. So so these societies have not been able to sustain genuine individual uh freedom. And so actually the only societies where you know wh- where you can have one is society where you also have the other. But mm-hmm. it's always a political project to to retain the majority for that. When majorities of people keep voting for candidates that want to say, we are the only good ones and we're going to shut everybody out. Or for people who say, hey, we have a set of moral views and it's our way or the highway, if you don't disagree with them, then then off to jail with you. You're not going to be able to sustain that system. So I think, in a fundamental way, you know, there's a reason why you only have generally democratic societies, where you have generally free societies, and only have generally free societies where you have generally democratic societies. But but holding those two things together and winning majorities, but keep affirming those basic principles, is always hard political work. And once one starts mm-hmm. to give away, the other is in danger as well. Mm-hmm.
2: Really? Do you think
0: uh, yearn- the yearning for freedom is is a universal? Thing. I mean, because there are countries like you mentioned, Singapore, and you know, who live in it seems like relative comfort in these kind of uh, you know regimes where that serve their needs but limit their freedoms.
1: I think it is. I do think that there are certain universal mm-hmm. values that humans uh, are, are come to long for, um, but it mm-hmm. depends on the context. Um, uh, you know, when you are very very poor you care more about having dinner than being able to you know, express your philosophical beliefs.
2: Yeah, once you've had yeah, dinner and yeah.
1: once you've come to know sure. that you can have dinner in a regular way, you're going to want to be able to do that other thing too, right? Um, so yeah. I think it's, it, you know, um, uh, here's a great example, right? I mean, some people in China say that, uh, you know, democracy is just a Western idea. We are a Confucian culture. We are more collectivist culture. You know, these these values mm-hmm. of democracy and stuff, we don't really care about them. You know, that's that's not a Chinese cultural value. And again, I think mm-hmm. in a sense that was true for a little while because China was an incredibly poor country in which, right. you know, people rightly thought, I want to make sure that I'm able to feed my child. I don't care about anything else right now. But I think as China is becoming more affluent, there will be more demand for those forms of self-determination. And one of the proofs of that yeah. is an island I spent a little bit of time in the spring by the name of Taiwan, which is just as Chinese culturally, which is has the same, mm. uh, there some indigenous people as well, but, but the majority of the population has the same ethnic origin. It's Han people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they speak Mandarin. Um, it's a Confucian collectivist culture in certain respects. And they have fought for and sustained a vibrant democracy for 30 years. So, you know, Taiwan is important, mm-hmm. not just geopolitically, but as, as a proof of the fact that these kind of culturalists, you know, oh, this is not a universal value. You know, we Chinese people don't care about it. No, that's untrue. There are lots of Chinese people Mm -hmm. who do care about that. And when we get the chance, um, they they fight for those kinds of freedoms. And so, um, you know, that doesn't mean that we should go in and impose democracy by force. That doesn't tend to work. It doesn't mean that we should be naive about the deep obstacles, right? About the deep obstacles in many countries to establish democratic systems. Lots and lots of very important caveats. But do I think that most people, once they reach a certain level of of security and material comfort, want to make decisions for themselves about how to live and what to say? Yes, I I don't think that that's just sort of, you know, a, a Western European or, a, or or Christian or Jewish or whatever thing. I think that's, that that applies yeah. to humans in every corner of the globe. It's interesting. I think, I think what you're saying
2: is so is so power. It's so deep, actually, and I. I think a lot of Western liberals, especially here in America, don't know people who are really illiberal. And so they assume that everybody has the same kind of view of like politics and life choices. But I come from a community, I think, the Orthodox Jewish community, that really does have a different view Mm. of what liberalism is, right? And there are elements of illiberal thought and belief within the Orthodox community. And I'm saying that not in a disparaging way. I'm saying it as a reality that, you know, a lot of Orthodox Jews— want to see, you know, Israel be more of a, you know, uh, religious state and all of these things. But when you say it the way you did about choosing to live in a place where you can be who you want and worship the way you want, when you talk about liberalism in that way, I think everybody agrees that that's important. Whether you want the head rabbi to be in charge or whatever, all of those Hmm. different elements are are. You know, may change, you know, wh- whether you grew up religious or not. But everybody wants that at the end of the day. They just don't realize that that's what being a liberal. Means it doesn't mean that you are going to a pride parade every June, right? It means that you want <laughs> freedom of speech and freedom of movement, and you know, free although speech you were and, at the pride parade in
0: Jerusalem last June, Khaled I was. That's we have true. photos of
1: you. <laughs> well, that is true. But, So, so that's sort of you know, one of the <clears throat> really interesting weird transformations of the last 15 years is this much more vibrant post liberal space, and part of it is uh conservative or right wing. Or you might say reactionary in certain ways, and part of it is is is, is left wing, right? I had a debate recently, uh, you know, with with one of the sort of good faith um, representatives of the right wing post liberal tradition, Soha Ahmari, uh, with an interesting mm. kind of personal mm-hmm. and biographical backstory and so on. Um, but mm-hmm. I was really struck that you know on that basic understanding of liberalism. Uh, we just had a fundamental disagreement. And I just really thought that he wasn't being fair to what the liberal tradition actually is and says. Because for him and for other kind of people in that right-wing post-liberal world, you know, th- the core of liberalism is autonomy, right? So they think of liberalism as, what what, mm-hmm. what liberals want is a society where everybody like cuts ties with their parents and stops being religious at the age of 18 mm-hmm. and moves to Tel Aviv or New York City it's and sort of maximizes mm-hmm. the kind of experiences they can have. And, you know, that's going to be terrible because you need those kind of links and communities and so on to, to have a meaningful life and to have a stable society and so on. Right? And what I can say to that is that's just a fundamental misunderstanding of what the liberal tradition wants. The liberal tradition says, yes, you mm-hmm. should have a freedom to do that, right? If that's yeah. what you choose to do once you're a grown adult, the majority shouldn't have a right to say, no, you're staying in whatever town you're from and you have Friday night dinner with your parents every week, and if you don't, then off to jail with you, right? Like, that's a terrible society. But, but, But liberals also recognize that there's one kind of way in which people in a pluralistic society are going to choose to live. And there's lots of other ways that people will live that are worthy of just the same respect. And by the way, we don't think naively that at 18 people think down from scratch and think, well, all the possible ways to live, I'm gonna choose from scratch how to live. Some people might do that. Men, most people are gonna say, mm-hmm. I grew up in a family that's orthodox or that's uh you know, right. Christian or uh whatever it may be. And I love my parents and I love our way of life, and I'm gonna continue in that, right? And 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 what liberalism fights for is the freedom of people to do that as much as the freedom of um you know much more yeah. uh, uh uh sort of whatever it is frill seeking people to go and um you know lead the life of radical self-creation I think a good mm-hmm. pluralistic democracy has respect for both of those and sometimes it's true that there are members of a certain kind of progressive elite that look down on more traditional communities but that's not mm-hmm. being a good philosophical liberal um you know that's that's just the kind of prejudices that groups always have against each other, including groups of, you know, annoying elites, um, you know, many of whom (laughs) run in my own (laughs) circle.
0: Yeah, same same for us. And we talk about them a lot. But I I think the post-liberals and from the right and the the, the people who are kind of doubling down on identity politics on the left, I I, I think they're looking for kind of short-term solutions. They're looking to win in a way. And and I think people like like you and I, I hope I hope like me as well, we're thinking of things that are sustainable, right? We're thinking of systems that could work for everyone in the long run universally and not just like let's let's win this battle. Cause sure if identity, you know, if or if post liberalism wins right now and I don't know, we uh, we manage to tap into everybody's phones, we maybe will be able to lower lower the threat of terrorism. But what are the long term implications of that? And it, it just seems to me like people aren't thinking about about things that are sustainable and could work for everyone everywhere.
1: Well, and here I, perhaps we get into you know really the heart of, of of a new book, the identity trap, which is about a kind of post liberalism on the left, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, the first thing to 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 explain here is that, uh, uh, you know, the thing that motivates me to write about this is not the fact that some 18-year-olds say stupid shit, right? I mean, some 18-year-olds have always said stupid shit in the history of the world. Right, I said stupid right, shit yeah. when I was 18. That
0: motivates me to tweet. Yeah, they, yeah that's yeah. I'm off Twitter because I, it, yeah.
1: <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> um, and, 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 and it's not that I don't recognize that, you know, the identity groups that people are part of are, are an important part of, of their lives mm-hmm. and, and shape how we see the world. I think that's probably true of all of us as well. It's yeah that,
0: and you do a very good job at being respectful of that you know the book doesn't feel like it's scolding in any way or like it's condescending
1: Yeah and, and the games. metaphor of a trap in, in 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 the title of the book right? like why is it a trap well a trap is something where there's a lure right There's something attractive about the, mm-hmm. uh, about the trap that lures you in um and smart and wily and and good people can end up right. falling into a trap but it's ultimately bad for you right so that's i think expresses that mm-hmm. that that But having said all of that, this new tradition is as fundamental a challenge to liberalism as other forms of more right-wing post-liberalism. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, you have critics of of quote-unquote wokeness on the right, but there's all a form of cultural Marxism. It's just taking sort of the beliefs that my grandparents held and taking out class and putting in identity groups. That's fundamentally wrong, uh, just as a matter of intellectual history and as a matter of what makes this ideology tick. And I show that very carefully in the book. But... There's a left-wing response to that, which is, you know, when you know when people like uh you know DeSantis or so on, you know, criticize wokeness, you know, really they're just um, you know, really wokeness is just wanting to teach about slavery in schools. Wokeness is just mm-hmm. wanting to be aware of the injustices in our society today. And that's really all that a traditional like critical race theory, for example, amounts to. But that may be true of some actors on right-wing American politics. That's really, you know, what what we're concerned, about? But you read the founders of this intellectual tradition, and they're very explicit that they reject the civil rights movement, that they reject right. philosophical liberalism, that they reject the politics of somebody like Barack Obama, right. So Derek Bell, mm-hmm. one of the founders of critical race theory, really interesting figure, um is a lawyer helping to desegregate schools and businesses and other institutions through the American South and beyond as a lawyer for the NAACP in the 1960s. But then he comes to think perhaps there was a mistake because actually a lot of the times the clients that I worked for had other interests. What they wanted is better mm. schools for their kids. They didn't care whether they were segregated or not. And because of some things that really did go wrong with the way that desegregation worked out and um, took a very, very long time, sometimes discriminated against black students, they didn't always get a quality education for their kids. So what we should have actually done, he concludes... This is where stopping on board of him is, you know, schools <laughs> though are basically separate but truly equal, right? And so he thinks Brown yeah. versus Board of Education, um, this landmark ruling that integrates American schools, was in key ways a mistake. And, uh, you know, people should give up on what he calls the defunct racial equality ideology of a civil rights movement, mm. right? He mocks and makes fun yeah. of core civil rights songs like We Shall Overcome which he thinks is sort right. of yeah. naive and do-goodery, right? Um, uh, and you see that in other key elements of the tradition. Kimberly Crenshaw says that, uh, uh, you know, CRT is fundamentally at odds with key aspects of Barack Obama's political worldview, right? And so I think yeah. what I'm trying to do in this book is to take these fears seriously, um, because especially the ones that actually shaped the ideology are serious and thoughtful scholars who we can be in conversation with and to some extent learn from, but to show that they're fundamentally opposed to the United States Constitution, to the idea that we should build a society in which how you treat it comes to be less dependent, not more dependent on your skin color, on your religion, on the Mm -hmm. kind of group of which you're part, and fundamentally at odds with what I think is the most inspiring political tradition in the United States, which is that of black liberals from Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. Jr. to Barack Obama.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because, uh, you know, reading your book, I learned a lot about, uh, you know, postmodernism and critical race theory. And I actually learned that there's a lot of stuff I do agree with. You know, there's a lot of stuff in there that's that's very, very salient and, and you know, very interesting. But there's a, most of it and the stuff that we've applied today has no bearing in the real world. So I could see a lot of it as really interesting thought exercises in academia, which which they were. But once you try to translate that to public policy and you have like friction with the world, none of it makes sense. So how do we get to the point where you know these these ideas that were still pretty much on the margins of academia, have become, you know, are, are popping up in, you know, Bank of America HR training for their, you know, employees.
1: Yeah. So so part one of my book really chronicles the intellectual origin of these ideas. And no mm-hmm. sort of, nobody with training in intellectual history has done that before. There's a couple of very polemical books by sort of these right-wing figures that, you know, just say cultural yeah, Marxism yeah. and, you know, that and And my problem is not, some of these people are smart, actually. My problem is not with them, but it's just... You know, if you read the intellectual history, just their account of it is wrong. And that matters because you end up with a real misunderstanding of the main themes and the main drivers of, uh, you know, what the identity synthesis consists in. You actually um,
0: made me agree with Edward Said on something, for which I will uh, <laughs> I will never forgive well, you. Well, and one, but of, the, no, but one you, of the great you things... <laughs> you laid it out quite well. But
1: one of the great things about reading these these figures in part one of the book is that they are serious mm-hmm. thinkers and, and, and scholars who have some deep yeah. insights, and many of whom become really perturbed by what becomes of their ideas. So one of the things yeah. that I agree with Said about is that he ends up saying, you know, the point is not to revel in victimhood, the point is to overcome victimhood. And today, often yeah. at American universities, we're going the wrong direction in that. Um, Gayatri Spivak, a sort of uh, post-colonialist thinker who grew up in Calcutta, is Indian by origin. Uh, I believe he's still an Indian citizen, actually, for for she's lived in the United States for many decades. Um, uh, You know, coins this really influential idea of strategic essentialism, which really helps to explain how people on, on the progressive end think about race today. Um, but she becomes really worried about it, right? And an analogy to mm. the tea wallas who sell tea on streets in India, she complains about the identity wallers at American universities who, you know, are completely humorless <laughs> and so on. So, so, a lot of these thinkers are critical of tradition. We then get to the sort of modern-day prophets of the vulgarized, popularized version of this, which is Ibrahim X Kendi and and Robin DiAngelo, mm-hmm. and they, I think, are much more simplistic and much less worth, um, you know. Taking seriously. Um, So how does that happen? That's what I sort of try to explain in the second part of the book. And what I roughly say is, um, first of all, that social media has a huge role in that. And it's not just because it amplifies extreme voices, but for much more interesting mechanisms. So the first is that, uh, you know, when you have an old-fashioned high school, people identify in all kinds of ways. They identify Based on the cultural and ethnic origin of their parents, mm-hmm. or the religion that they have, they might identify as jocks or geeks or you know theater kids or whatever, right. right? But it's limited because you have to have a real in-person community that shares some kind of identity with you, right? To have a socially salient identity, there's got to be a minimum number of people who shared, and given right. sort of size constraints, that means that there's only so many of them available, right? Once you have the rise of uh, uh, sort of communities like Tumblr, where people can tag their identities and find others who have that and create new tags, create new identity categories, it's enough for a tiny fraction of the overall population to think of themselves in that way to get that sort of viable identity community off the ground. And so that's why this sort of social media, microblogging, self-tagging mechanism that you get from Mm -hmm. Tumblr is really crucial Mm -hmm. in the... Sort of uh, proliferation of of many new right. identity categories, and then when you have this platform where everybody has their own like tiny little identity, you need some kind of overarching ideology that helps to keep that together, and that starts to become the popularized form of the identity synthesis, where it's sort of you know you know never being offensive, being called out for uh, something being wrong, you know silence and being wrong. violence, mm-hmm. yeah. you know um, impact mattering rather than intentions, all of that becomes really central to that sort of governing ideology of Tumblr and it starts to escape out into the written form through platforms like Ford Catalog, um, through websites like everydayfeminism.com. Uh, And and you start to see that that's where I encountered for the first time sort of like 2014, 2015. I somehow stumbled on everydayfeminism.com with articles like, you know, (laughs) eight (laughs) things to tell your yoga teacher who thinks (laughs) cultural appropriation is fun, you know, and stuff like that. Oh, they've really taken the stuff that so far I only knew in the seminar room and found a way of making it sort of BuzzFeedy and viral, right? And and then there's another transformation which is crucial, which is that when Vox is founded in 2013, most of the views to the website come, most of the views to, to its articles come from the website. People still used to go to Vox.com mm-hmm. and they look at what's there, right? right? And that's how people read the news. And when that's the case, any one article has to appeal to a lot of people, right? Because if I go to the website right. and nine out of 10 articles are of no interest to me, I'm not going to come back. But around 2015, 2016, social media became so influential, so, 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 such a big part of traffic that most of the mm-hmm. article views were through social media. And who are you connected to in yeah. social media? People who share an identity. So suddenly the mm-hmm. article about the yoga teacher and cultural appropriation, or the article about, you know, experiences of Asian Americans, or the articles about Jews, or the article about, you know, whatever identity group could travel much more easily and become much, much, much more popular. And that's how a lot of these ideas then got pulled into the mainstream. And even before mm-hmm. the election of Donald Trump, you know, sort of the core terms of the identity synthesis had just increased plenifold, manifold in newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post. You saw it very quickly being mainstreamed because of its commercial incentive as well. Um, Very quickly, there's a couple of other important things. One is what I call the short march for the institutions. So by 2010, just, you know, so many students are being... Uh, raised in these ideas at university, in seminars and and classrooms, but also in trainings by administrators who are much more progressive than the average faculty member, who's more progressive than the average student and so on. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then the institutions that hire a lot of young people compete for the labor of young people. So they have to tell them that they can, you know, really bring their political values to the workplace and have a sort of self- Bring your
0: whole self to
1: work. Yeah, which is a sort of buzzword, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, I bring my, you know, whole self to my friend group. I, I don't want to bother my workplace. <laughs> Even um, then, I don't.
0: Insane. You
1: know, they don't
2: need to see my. Whole yeah, I know. <laughs> Even then, there's limits. Um, yeah.
1: uh, especially for you, Yael. Um, <laughs>
2: <laughs> you have no idea how true that is. Thank you for saying that. We don't need the whole Yael. <laughs>
1: um, and then when you have a self-conception as an organization is doing good, it's really hard to say no, right, to, to, to young people mm-hmm. who are making demands. And so you see how quickly that transforms organizations, from Google to some of the most yeah. uh, sort of prestigious professional firms, law firms, consulting firms, etc., to a lot of nonprofit organizations, right. And then the third step is Trump gets elected, and the basic mechanism kind of the for having self-critique mm-hmm. goes out of a window. Because one of the real sort of light bulb moments I had in doing research for his book was, you know, internal critics get a lot of play in groups. If you've been a member of this group for a long time, say, hey, I, I worry that we're going the wrong direction. I worry that this new idea we have is not, in fact, a good idea for us. Uh, or perhaps it's just morally wrong or it's just going um, to make us as effective. People are normally going to listen to you unless there's a condition of threat. Unless you think there's a genuine threat coming mm. from the outside. And then they think you're a traitor. How dare you criticize the group? How dare you disagree with (laughs) us? And that's what happened after Trump was elected in many progressive spaces, where people saying, well, perhaps some of the ideas of Robin DiAngelo don't really make that much sense. You could not (laughs) say that. And so a small minority of just very ideologically radical people, I think often quite misguided people, was able to just sort of impose their views on these organizations, because if you push back, you were... You know, painted as sort of a secret admirer of Donald Trump or whatever. So, <laughs> so, so that's true. how these ideas go from being influential in academia in 2010 to to the surprise of the main advocates of critical race theory, to the surprise of people like Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, who in 2010 said our ideas are not going to have any big mainstream purchase. You know, people like Obama are completely against them, and he's one debate two in 2020. You know, running a lot of America.
2: That's true. Mm-hmm. I, to me, the biggest—I tra- mean, I work at a college campus. To me, the biggest tragedy is this—I hate to use the word indoctrination, but, you know, this idea that the students are—the most important thing about the students is how they look or who, you know, what their ethnic background is, rather than saying, you are all Cal State Long Beach students, and that's what makes you— you know, a group, and that's how you should look, view each other, and that's what you should, you know, that should be your main identity right now. For these four years that you're here, your main identity should be your, uh, you know, a beach student, right? Instead, Mm -hmm. we're literally creating division. It's the adults in the room creating this division, forcing the students to choose clubs, choose identities, choose, you know, who they spend their time with, who, and I just, and I'm saying that, by the way, as the head of Jewish Student Life, I love that they come to, you know, Hillel and do all the things with us. But there's something I think very dangerous about forcing everybody into their little corners on the campus and saying, this is where you belong. We're not a cohesive group. We don't have anything in common Everybody, you know, is fighting each other. It's, it's, and this is, these are the future adults of our country. And we're doing that, by the way, in Mm -hmm. our institution. No, I I agree with you strongly. Look,
1: part of a liberal society is freedom of association, right? Part of it is that you can choose who your friends are. And if you choose friends who are from the same background, even the same ethnic background, that's, that's, that's your right. That's, that's, that's your choice. And that's, that's fine. But that's always going to happen naturally right? People are always going to have these strong subnational allegiances. There's always going to be people of strong religious beliefs who spend a lot of their time as members of religious Mm -hmm. community. And that's a good thing, right? Um, There's always going to be people who feel strongly about their cultural background, who want to be around people who perhaps have the same sort of immigrant story or or whatever. And that's fine too. But the role of institutions in society should be to make sure that we also see beyond that, that we also are able to have these connections with each other. And there's really powerful psychological research that shows the good impact of that. So, intergroup contact theory, which is probably the most successful research program in social psychology for the last 70 years, thousands of studies, shows that when you are in these situations where you collaborate with others, you reduce prejudice. But there's key yeah. conditions around that. And so, one of right. those conditions is that in that situation, you're treated as an equal. Doesn't mean that you have to be an yeah. equal in society as a whole. Some people may. Still be experiencing discrimination, so on, unfortunately, but in that situation, people are treating as equals. Second is you have common goals there's something in that situation that you're fighting for together um, and the third is that you have a message from your authority figures that you're expected to get along now I'm not much right. of a you know sports guy right. um you know as a, as, a, as a good intellectual jew i'm sorry to say you know this is this is a point for the jokes but As a nerd, yeah. Yeah. But but sports teams are a great example of that, right? You take kids in in, in, in elementary school, middle school, and high school, and you're saying, hey, there may be all kinds of differences between you out there in the world. You're part of this team. That's the most important thing in this context. And you have a goal together to win this game. And you expect it to get along. If you start fighting, I'm going to tell you that's not on. And then in the locker room afterwards, you can say, hey, this thing happened to me, or hey, I have these concerns. And you have that empathy, you have that friendship that allows for that mutual understanding, that for, that allows for it. And there's many, many, many studies showing how positive a force that is for reducing mm-hmm. prejudices. So what we're doing now yeah. is the opposite. And it's one thing, and by the way, we're doing the opposite at, at college campuses in ways that I find really troubling. So it used to be that, yeah. you know, uh, first years at American universities are put, you know, into a room with somebody from somewhere else in, in the country or somewhere else in the world, and they're literally sharing a room and we are expected to get along. And many of the deepest friendships that American adults have come from that. Nowadays, most colleges allow people to choose their roommates on Facebook or to choose their roommates That's in whatever right. way. And there's Facebook groups or, or or you know Instagram groups where people find them and obviously they end up being very similar to them. And actually many elite colleges have now built racially segregated housing. That's right. Into That's which right. they're That's often crazy. encouraging people. To to opt Mm -hmm. in. But at least here we're talking about adults, right? Part of what I describe as progressive separatism in my book, which has deep roots in the thought of people like Derek Bell, is these affinity groups in which teachers, especially at elite private schools, at Dalton School, at Sidwell Friends, at the schools of some of the most elite uh, uh, parents in the country send their kids to, At the age of six or seven, teachers come into the room and say, you're black, you go over there. You're Latino, you go over there. You're Asian American, you go over there. And one of the, and and the idea is sort of, you know, that they should come to identify proudly with a group and fight back against oppression and injustice. Um, I I don't know if that's a great idea, but I certainly know it's a terrible idea to do that to the white kids. Because when I was growing (laughs) up in Germany, you know, (laughs) uh, was Catholic or Protestant religion lessons, and since I wouldn't take either, you know, I and the, two kids of Turkish guest workers had a free lesson. And we read Bravo, which was this kind of like somewhat smutty German teen magazine. So I had a good time. That's hilarious. uh, But you can't, I mean, that's unfair, right? You can't tell the white kids, everybody else is being lectured and you like go to recess and, you know, uh, play ball or whatever. That doesn't seem fair. So what they do is to get white people into a room and they tell them, you need to embrace your whiteness. You need to have a stronger racial (laughs) self-identification. And the hope is that that's going to make you a great anti-racist activist who denounces white privilege. That is not how societies work. That is not how groups work. Once you tell people to identify very strongly with a group, they're going to fight for the interests of that group. And so for every white... I can't
0: imagine the Jewish kids going to sit in the whiteness
2: group and being told (laughs) to embrace their white Well, I mean,
1: that happens at (laughs) these schools, of course. It happens all the time, now. That's
2: crazy. I I was at an interfaith breakfast that they... There were like 500 people there, and they wanted everyone to divide up into affinity groups as part of a breakout session after the breakfast. And I looked at the list of affinity groups, and I said... I don't fit into any of these affinity groups. I'm not going to sit in a group of white people and talk about, you know, whatever white people are going to talk about. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, it just doesn't make any sense. Ethnically, religiously, like there's nothing about me that fits into that group. But I wasn't, there was no other space for me to fit in. This whole thing is stupid. I'm sorry. It's just a stupid way of dividing up a room. And, and this doesn't is, make and, sense. And,
1: and, and, and there's two important things in here, right? I mean, one is just that I think is fundamentally a bad idea, right? Like, let's say that I easily fit into a group of you know white people which right. i think given yeah, even jewish if, right. history is is, is dubious <laughs> and certainly not uh, how my <laughs> great grandparents were treated um but, but but let's say let's say that i did i don't define by my ethnic group in that way that is not yeah. how i think mm-hmm. of myself and uh, so I think it it has it violence to people who say no. I, I identify myself in in different ways by the political values that I have, by the aspirations that I have, by the bad jokes I make, by whatever, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, right. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the other problem is that you're always going to have people whose membership in a group is is marginal, right? So it can be Jews as members yeah. of a white group where where it's sort of marginal. Right. It can be smiley. Muslims who are sort of oh, you, you go over to a Muslim group. Well, actually, you go into a group yeah. a lot of whose members might think that you know you're um, you, don't uh, yeah. a, you know a, a, a terrible religious traitor because of the particular beliefs you have, and you know you deserve to have terrible things done to each other. So we have a society in which who you are is just always fundamentally seen through the identity group to which you belong. Uh, not only is it a bad society; it's always going to spell trouble for people who. Whose, whose membership in a particular yeah. group might be questioned. I had a student, um, I, I taught about cultural appropriation, which is one of my bugbears, and I have a whole chapter about why we shouldn't be worried about cultural appropriation in general. There's certain mm-hmm. instances of things you might describe as cultural appropriation that are unjust, but, but the idea that we should reject mutual cultural influence in general is just a real, real mistake. Um, I have yeah. a student who, during the pandemic, was asked... Um, to recreate one of the artworks in the uh, collection of her university museum, uh, which is a way that museums were trying to engage people during the pandemic when people couldn't go and see the actual exhibits, right? right. And so she decided to recreate um, a self-portrait by a Chinese artist and her mother, um, which had, you know, photographed, photograph, which had to do a kind of critique of beauty standards or whatever, right? And so she did that with her mom, who's a Chinese immigrant. Um, And she she did a good job of it, and she emailed it in, and the museum director said, oh, that's beautiful, thank you, we'll put it up on the website soon. And a day or two later, she gets an email from the Asian-American curator at that museum saying, how dare you, you've committed cultural appropriation, this is deeply offensive. She went back, I I don't understand, I'm in this photograph, my mom is in this photograph, she's a Chinese immigrant. Yeah, but your dad is not Chinese. You're not fully (laughs) Chinese, so you don't get to. This is an American Ivy League university. Which has a racial mm-hmm. purity test for whether this poor girl and her mother are allowed yeah. to recreate that artwork? Because even though she thinks of herself as Chinese American, her mother is in fact a Chinese immigrant. Her dad is not, and that is sort of how that group logic will always end up mistreating people whose membership right. in that group can somehow be seen as marginal. Yeah.
0: Do you and ever wish that you? To, do you ever wish that you
2: had a job that was like? not dealing with every existential crisis in the world. Like, do you wish you worked at Trader (laughs) Joe's or like— I don't know. We're an electrician. Do you ever have those moments?
1: Well, you know, I I I I don't know, but I wish I worked at Trader Joe's. But I would much rather be, you know, a regional manager of you know over Trader Joe's in New York than I would be to be a dean of a college. I mean, to be a dean of a right, college right. is the worst possible job because people blame you for everything. Oh you have God. no power. Oh. At least if you're you, are, you oh know the manager God. of Trader Joe's and somebody misbehaves, you can fire. <laughs> which as a dean, you can't that's do. Right. You know, so but
0: you get to wear a Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, that's right. You don't get to wear it as a dean. I guess you could uh, do that as a dean. People would.
1: Say nigger that you
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe in Hawaii. But um before we let you go, I just I have one last question. I don't know if Haile has uh one last question too, but how do you like living in America?
1: Mm. Um you know, I I I America has become my home in many ways. I, I became a citizen mm-hmm. in 2017. Um I love New York, um, I love many other parts of, of the United States as well. Um I do think, you know, and it used to be that there's kind of, but I had a sense that there's parts of a country that I deeply disagree with in ways that make me feel a little bit alienated, right? And certainly when I look at sort of, not anybody who votes for a Republican, I think there's many decent Republicans, but anybody who, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, is really a member of a MAGA crowd in a a deep way, Uh it it does deeply concern me (laughs) um, uh, about, you know, their values and priorities and how they perceive the world and, and there's something disturbing about that. That exists in many other countries too. It's not um, uh, right. specific to, to the United States. Um, but, but you know, after Trump was elected, I sort of felt like, you know, that's fine because uh, I have an America that I feel in tune with, right? I have an America mm-hmm. on on whose behalf I am trying to preserve our democratic institutions and, 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 you know, and where I do actually feel very comfortable and seen. And for me, you know, the, the, the growth and the spread of uh, you know, some of these post-liberal or illiberal ideas on the left and the ease with which many institutions that I'm a part of have gone along with some of these practices um the lack of resistance to some of the sort of peak craziness on these topics okay. a few years ago um has made me feel a little bit less at home because I no longer feel as comfortable in my milieu. these people say like, well, I love my milieu yeah. versus other right. America that I have some amount of sympathy and understanding for, but that I feel sort of alienated from right and now I feel like actually um. I have wonderful students. My colleagues have so far, Touchwood been very nice and uh, friendly to me, despite you know the disagreements with some of my political views. Um, you know, I I I haven't been on the receiving end of of some of these you know moral panics. Um, uh, so so I I've sort of felt perfectly fine personally in a way, but my awareness of how easily people can end up being uh, victims of these kind of witch hunts you know, by mm. people who are my friends and colleagues, by people who I actually like and uh, uh, in many ways used to used to admire and in many ways still do admire, it has made me feel a little bit uh, more self-critical. And I really think that there's a kind of, you know, problem of a, a broad American elite that has gone to the kind of colleges where I was shaped and, um, mm. uh, you know, goes on to live in the kind of neighborhoods that I love and, I know, work at the kind of places that I have many friends that at but at. have become very, very, very separate from the rest of the population. And that's true of me. I came yeah, here, you know, true. as a kind of privileged immigrant to go to grad school, right? Like every friend I have in this country, they come from generally many different cultural backgrounds, many different religions, many different races. But they all have Ivy degrees. And I'm slightly exaggerating, but but only slightly, right? Um and so I think I, well, I the sort two of, of you. Yeah, both of you yeah. have Ivy yeah, e we,
2: degrees, both from Harvard. Like you, both are immigrants who have the highest, uh, you know. Right.
0: Yeah, and I never felt like I, I. was told when I was at the Kennedy School, I was told that I was a Republican, <laughs> even though I had never had had any held any Republican beliefs. But because I was, I didn't quite fit into, you know, back then it was kind of the the Obama train and the the, you know, everybody was very clear on how they felt about the Dream Act. And for me, as an immigrant, I was like, you know, I, I don't know about the DREAM Act. And I was immediately kind of labeled mm. as a Republican. But I, I understand what you mean about that self-criticism, because it's like it's harder when it comes from your... Like the people in Mississippi who are MAGA, I can look at them and roll roll my eyes or maybe even be concerned about them. But it doesn't hurt me personally, uh, because it's not my my friend group. Uh, yeah. It's not the people I, I'm amongst.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, my last question, Yasha. Ready? Ready. Are you Are you single? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you want to set him up with a nice Jewish? Dress? Yes. Uh, no, 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 Obviously.
1: no, no. Comment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no comment. She's <laughs> going to send you a list of ten names and headshots of Jewish,
2: nice <laughs> kosher Jewish do, do,
1: women. Do, do I? Do I need to keep kosher? <laughs> Is that part of a deal?
2: I don't know. I'm not saying that. I'm just you know I'll give you options. There will be there will be different options as well. <laughs> different levels of kosher, you know, <laughs> some non. I just want to make sure that, you know, find a, find some. You're too smart. You need to, like, have family. That's all I care about. Oh,
1: that's that's what it is. Well, well <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my mom's email address.
2: <laughs> yes, <it's> exactly. <absolutely. laughs> well, thank you so, so much for coming on yeah, and giving us your you, time Asha. and making us sound smarter. It's good. We, you know, some of our episodes, we sound like two dumbbells. So this one, I think we'll, we'll get some... We'll get some good points for her.
0: Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, thank you so much.